Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast and what is an extremely beautiful Monday. It's 22 degrees out there, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this Monday is as nothing compared to, apparently, Tuesday. That's tomorrow, Kieran. Yeah. Uh, which, according to the Irish Times uh, website that I'm looking at right now, it says, Tuesday set to be hottest day of the year so far at 28 degrees. And then, just underneath the little tagline for the story, it says... High levels of pollen mean 20% of population will be stuck inside sneezing. (laughs) (laughs) More room on the beach for us. I'm thinking, what about the 80%? Yeah. What what about the 80% of us that are maybe just going to have a nice day on Tuesday? I'm sorry uh, about the hay fever suffers. Yeah. I suppose it's difficult to empathize if you've never really suffered from it before yourself. Owen has has, uh, periodic uh, bouts of hay fever. Does he? Yeah, eyes streaming. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's it? I've, I've never even noticed this. Does he moan about it? Uh, I would assume yeah. so if he, if he was suffering. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he, he he bears it lightly. Yeah. You know, as he does with all struggles. Of course, not struggling this week, Ken. Oh, no. Our lovely man got married on Friday, so he's on a little mini moon in I mean, an undisclosed location. Very good. on the island of Ireland. Yeah, well, congratulations to uh, Owen and Rebecca for getting married on Friday. Very a lovely day was had by all. You had a lovely uh, weekend, though, Karen. It wasn't just ah. uh, the wedding. You made it down to your uh, your home county. And really, what a role that home county is on these days. Mm. Uh, population of Galway City of 5.3% in the recent census. Uh, just people flocking to Galway. Just, they just don't want to live anywhere else. I mean, I, I feel that now is a good time, probably, to talk about... Uh, moving the capital. Yeah. I mean, why, why, why are we? Uh, I mean, Dublin has had a good run. Yeah, sure, they've had a good run, but I just think that maybe now is the time for a little bit of decentralisation. Well, I think at current rates of expansion, in fact, there will be more people living in Galway than in London in about uh, two hundred and fifty years if the <laughs> if the current uh, rate of change uh, continues. Uh, European capital of culture. Uh, Announced on Friday. On, on Friday, uh, Connacht, obviously the Pro Twelve champions, and just to top it all off, Karen, it, it literally doesn't get any better than this. Mm. It literally doesn't and won't get any better than this. Galway win the Connacht Championship yesterday, 
uh, in what I'm told, because it wasn't on television, was a glorious festival of attacking football. It was, uh, Ken. It was. Um, I mean, we, we have to do this every couple of every couple of years. You know, come along, save football, show the sport the way, uh, and we're 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 happy to to once again indulge. So what happened? Because I I'd I'd been reading about Galway and uh, the way that they were being spoken about after last week's um, last week's match against yeah. Roscommon uh, was kind of you know. If you took Antonio Conte's Italy and drugged them, uh, I mean, drug drug them to make them more obedient and less uh, independent thinking, mm. and then sent them out there, you know, with some body parts replaced by mechanical parts. So this was kind of an image generally of, uh, you know, let's say not the most creative team, not the most spontaneous. Well, team. I think it was more the the game last week. Yeah, I, th- I think that Galway were joint, maybe even slightly less than equal partners in uh, creating uh, what was not. You're blaming Roscommon for, for making it a boring game. Well, you're actually you're sitting there blaming Roscommon for making it a boring game. No, I think bo- uh, both teams contributed handsomely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk to Ushi McConville and Caramanian in studio in a few minutes about it. But uh, it was extraordinary the, that Galway could make one tactical change which was to push up on Roscommon's kickouts and deny them the short kickout option and that completely changed the entire complexion of the game uh, that's what happened uh, I mean we actually rather bizarrely Goalie gave Roscommon the first kickout allowed them to chip that short and then uh, swooped into action um, so yeah I mean it was it, it, it was nearly bizarre to see it that just one the flick of one switch could change the game as decisively as it did. And, uh, yeah, for half an hour, Galway played absolutely brilliantly. I mean, the second half just limped along to a sorry conclusion. I have to say, I was shocked by how many Roscommon fans left early, mm. given uh, given the enthusiasm which with, with which they've been following their football team uh, over the last five or six months. Couldn't bear to watch it, I suppose. Oh, like 20 minutes to go, like a complete... You know, exodus from the stand in Castlebarry yesterday. It was quite bizarre. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, Galway were, Galway were pretty bloody good. And well, there I, was uh, action in other provinces as well. well I hope they are right that, that they can uh, save the game or, or do something to breathe some life into the game. Because, you know, just from my own point of view uh, as a True Blue dub, mm. um, I'm just wondering when the rest of the counties are going to get out from under Dublin's boot. Because uh, it's kind of been, it's like the, our boot's been on, you know, a... Uh, has been on you now for a while, mm. but it's kind of like we like to take the boot off for you to to get up and 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 let's go at this again. But the problem is, it's like every everywhere we step, it's it's like we've tried to pick our boot, but every time everywhere our boot lands, it's on another how would county. You, how would you like us to be trod upon? It's it's just overlords. It's just getting a little monotonous. Yeah. I, I find. I mean, I, I don't know. There, there might be Dublin supporters out there who who get a thrill out of this. Well, only thirty-eight thousand of the, well, only thirty-eight thousand people in total turned up to the Leinster final yesterday. So I'm thinking there is a dwindling number of people who are actually enjoying this from uh, Dublin's perspective. Um, I mean, we we saw Westmead resorting some some uh, some cheap tricks. You know, we saw James Dolan. German, uh, German, oh, the German Connolly incident. Yes. Well, I mean, and, and his manager more or less said afterwards, yeah, you know, we were trying to. Well, I mean, it's, that's about as. Open the Gaelic football intercounty manager 
manual 2016 edition <laughs> page one and what does it say? if you find yourself at any stage playing Dublin yeah. then try and get a reaction out of German Connolly as a starting position try that anyway we'll work on defensive systems and you know trying to keep the score down uh, you know on pages 37 to 39 but this is page one and what we're telling you to do is to try and incite uh, or try and uh, get a reaction out of Jeremy Connolly. I couldn't understand why Connolly was being criticised for that because it seems to me, as that, especially by people from outside Dublin, I mean, I could understand maybe Dublin supporters wanting to wanting him not to do that because there's a risk of, mm-hmm. you know, being sent off. off. Um, but from people from outside Dublin, surely the only real hope at this time seems to me the uh, an influx of kind of FC Hollywood-style decadence into... You know, this the, that's yeah. that's kind of like the best the best hope that this Dublin thing falls apart from within because it doesn't look as though you know. Well, there, you know, Ken, I'm I know that you're only trying to bait me and my. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just concerned about the game. <laughs> I've got to. They'll be playing uh, Donegal in the quarterfinals if Donegal beat Cork, which I think that they will. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, if they stick 25 points on Tony Gold, then, you know, then we can, get, we can get to it. As it stands, Dublin have won three of the last five All-Irelands. They've yet to put All-Ireland titles back-to-back. And uh, they're probably going to have to beat Donegal, Kerry in Toronto in the All-Ireland. So, or uh, Donegal or Mayo or, you know, who, they're going to have to beat three teams to win the All-Ireland. Mm. Uh, and those three teams will probably be pretty good. So, so, I mean, if they go ahead and do that, then, then fine, Ken, fine. We'll get in under your boot. Yeah. But uh, until September, I'm I'm happy to to see how this see how this plays out. There was a streaker um, at uh, Dublin Westmeath, yeah, which at least meant some titillation for the crowd. No, never shown Although on TV not, anymore. Why? Why is that? Because they don't want to give the the streaker in question the oxygen of pub- publicity. I mean, this is pretty much standard all across all sporting events now. I know, but it, I think it's a I think it's a it's definitely a way in which live coverage of sporting events has disimproved. Mm. Over the over the last well, I I wouldn't have mind seeing the steward who took his bib off to preserve the young gentleman's dignity. <laughs> I mean, like that seeds there is a certain comic value I think to that, particularly because those bibs are often quite short. So I don't know if he tried to wrap it around the midriff, yeah, or whether he actually put the bib on to you know prevent people seeing his nipples. Yeah, there which, was no you know, no such um, raw excitement at the open where uh, the. Spectators had to be content with just some uh, thrilling golf. Mm, wearing uh, their, their waterproofs. And we will talk to uh, Sam Weinrand about Henry Stenson's amazing uh, victory. But for now, fully clothed in the studio, we're joined by Carl Mannion and Ushie McConville. How are you doing, guys? Hey, Ken. Ken, how's things? Uh, were you surprised at how definitively Mickey Hart described this as the sweetest of his six Ulster titles? Absolutely the best was how he described it afterwards. It's not what we always say when it's our most recent. Um... <laughs> It was, it was sweet in the fact that <coughs> uh, Tyrone had been pretty far away from this point up until last year, and they sort of were getting there and getting there. They've they've won every competition event of this year. They've gone through the season unbeaten, and yes, it was a real monkey off the back. But look, there's going to be bigger challenges, I think, for Tyrone down the lane. But there was a coming of age type thing with it with it yesterday. Um, Anybody who was at the game, it was really, really defensively structured football. It was um, it was like a basketball game. In fact, 
I don't know if any of us have seen a new sport on Sky called Kabaddi. Yeah, Oshin, oh, yeah. don't need to talk to us about Kabaddi. It's been it's a regular topic of ours on is this it? show. Or okay. Why is it like Kabaddi? Well, why was it like Kabaddi? Well, it was just one point yesterday where the defences were just... Were, were, in the first half, thrown retreated into 45. Now, Donegal were playing with a wind. That was too far back. So they, sh- they should have been out another five, six, seven metres because... Uh, Donegal were able to kick scores from 45, 50 metres. Um, or McNeil's kicked an absolutely brilliant score. But I was going to say in the second half that they had that defensive structure five yards further out. But the one player who kept breaking the line was uh, Sean Kavanagh, mm. trying to run out and trying, <laughs> trying to grab the Donegal player <laughs> and suck him in and, uh, and get him in there. And it reminded me, because I, I just... I don't know if, what do you think of Kabaddi, but... Uh, you sit there and you go, wow, what a load of crap this is. And yeah. two hours later you go, Jesus, what a load of crap this is. But you're still sitting there. <laughs> you're still sitting there watching it. And, uh, you know, it just, it just, that just, there was just one thing that reminded me of it was like, there was such a structure to the lane and then there was one renegade who had to yeah. run out. And it was like Sean Cavanagh just said, ah, I'm fed up with this, but he's no harm to you. I'm going to go out and I'm going to push them. I'm going to push them. And, it was only one player, so it didn't make any difference to to the to the actual defensive line or the way that Donegal were attacking. But I think yesterday it showed a, a certain humanity, though. Yeah, in Cavanaugh's uh, yeah, I think he just mindset. Said, Fuck this. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I got to see the first half in Casabara of the game, and it just looked that Donegal were more comfortable in the setup. You know that they were able to break the line, they were able to pick off the few scores. And what we spoke about last week between Galway and Roscommon, no one kind of went from their, the game plan, like uh, the, everyone just did exactly what they were told for the whole game. And there was no situation awareness that Kavanaugh had that at least to, you know, to signal something that this is going to be different in the next half. I'm going to do something yeah. a little bit different, possibly signal the, for the rest of the Toronto players, you know, and, like, you know, to take it on a bit more. Yeah, the last 10 minutes of the game seemed pretty e- uh, epic, but before that... What you you were you no, was, didn't fancy it, no? <clears throat> no, it was poor enough stuff. And I think uh, I was surprised at how quick or how slowly Trone were to make changes. How slowly Mickey Hart was, how slow Mickey Hart was. He had Justin McMahon and Colin Kavanagh mining the edge of the D. Made absolutely no difference because Donegal kicked one ball, one ball in 40 minutes football into the full forward line. Yeah. And the rest of them, they just kicked from 45, 45 metres. They kicked. Uh, six wides and kicked what seven scores in the first half, uh, and that was I think that was as much uh, as many attacks as they had. But I just thought that Trone would have learned quicker. But in fairness to them, you know, the art of good management is to be able to make changes at the right time. The strange thing is that one of those changes was an enforced change. Cattle McShane got the black card. Rory Brennan come on. Detailed to man mark Ray McHugh, and that completely changed the game. Once Ray McHugh was out of the game, I've said it here before that um, Donegal don't have the same pace going forward. They don't have that dynamism that they used to have. Uh, Madlin was largely taken out of the game, and when they don't have somebody surging forward like that, or McNeil is a super footballer, but he's a sideways footballer. Mm. He's a lateral footballer, along with about 11 others. And that Donegal team and uh, Patrick McBrady and Michael Murphy were rendered absolutely, you know, null and void yesterday because Murphy actually spent. This is a crazy thing. Murphy spent the majority of the second half a full forward, and they never kicked any ball into him. And it just, it absolutely amazes me. 
Yeah, well, why would they have put him in full forward and then not kick the ball into him? I mean, I don't understand. I mean, for, like, playing behind two sweepers. The strange thing is, I said here, sorry, Cal, but I said here most weeks saying, I can't believe they can't play, they don't play Michael Murphy at full forward. And yet, yesterday was probably one of those days where he could have played a more withdrawn role. Yeah, and I assume the sense at half time that Donegal addressed to him was, you know, like, this is going fine. Like, you know, we have our system, we're set up well, so are Tyrone, but they're not able to break us down. Toronto aren't playing as dynamically as they have yet they're not kind of breaking beyond our line you know things are going pretty well so the decision for Murphy to go for forward was probably a strange one but the fact that Donegal kept playing the way they were playing was probably understandable because you know they didn't seem to have the, the threat that Toronto were pros and every team impacting on their performance so like you know Donegal were probably happier at half time and it reflected the way they played the second half whereas Toronto had plenty to work on and that's why they changed up a little bit Absolutely and I think the other thing was that Mark Bradley come on the field he go, okay, come on early, but in the second half, he completely changed. So he played right out on the left-hand wing. Uh, Brendan, come on, any time he, he attacked, he attacked down the right-hand wing. Kieran McGeary, come on, okay, he was only on for 10 minutes, whatever it was, and, and attacked right down the left-hand wing as well and completely started to suck the Donegal defenders out a little bit. And if you see the, the Tyrone scores, they were still under a little bit of pressure or actually a good bit of pressure but not as much pressure as under in the first half and that gives them that little bit of pocket that few pockets of space and the quality that, that Tyrone have they were able to kick those scores and not a lot of teams probably would have got out of there yesterday beating Donegal Donegal would have edged out that game with most teams about 10-9 or 10-8 or something like that Carl you are a young man I mean you don't look that old <laughs> <laughs> thanks, me. thanks Ken, very nice to say. So are you, that was just to me that you're in the camp that finds a game like uh, that one intense, intriguing, rather than boring, I wish they'd play football. There's aspects of it, yeah, that I would find intriguing, but once it uh, is consistently like that, a lot of over and back and not people taking risks, that goes against the way I would have played football and I would have enjoyed playing football, whereas you you put you take a risk every now and again. You know, you you put a bit of faith in the man, the big man on the inside. So you give him a sixty forty ball to put a bit of faith into him that he's gonna catch that ball and he's gonna score or gonna set up something. You're gonna try and put the the very well set up defensive structure under a bit of pressure by taking a couple of risks, you know, by trying to put that long ball in. Uh, yeah, so f- while I am maybe a younger generation, I would definitely be a, a more of a traditional kick passing uh, playing like as you see it kind of an approach I understand definitely that defensive tactics have to be in place and when Jim McGuinness brought that in in 2012 against Dublin it was I thought it was intriguing to watch but as the game has evolved over the last few years and uh, lesser teams are trying to implement it it does become a bit of a bore fest and I don't like the way it's been played The players are so obedient now I don't understand how this has happened like what how, how do you get like a bunch of Gaelic footballers who behave like um, stormtroopers I actually, I actually think that's a really good question, Ken. I think there's two things about that. I think because there's a real fear factor there, because if you don't tell him what everybody else is doing, there's so many sheep who are willing to go in the same direction. If you're not, you'll get tossed aside. And footballers, for whatever reason, Gaelic footballers, really want to be part of their inter-county setups. So much, more, so much so that they're desperate to do what everybody else is doing. But here's... For me, the big thing with, with Gaelic footballers right now is you watch a lot of soccer, right? Yeah. And you do you, do you, after games, what's the first thing that soccer or people within soccer or managers, they analyse what's after happening. 
all I hear now from GA players is we proved the critics wrong, we fucking we shoved it up his hole, and we, you know, <laughs> and that's the first thing that is in the mind. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Every time you read a paper on a Monday morning, wow, well, we proved those critics wrong. But you didn't really, you didn't prove anybody wrong until you go ahead and win all air. Like I've I've listened to lots of boys over the last couple of weeks saying we proved this person wrong, we proved the critics wrong. You know, he wasn't such a great player when he played. That's not the point. That's not the point of what everybody's trying to do. Everybody's trying to get to get better week on week. Uh, some of the football is difficult to watch, but if that if that brings you results, then fair enough, go for it. But this stage, one team team in particular is Donegal. Donegal. It's not too late for Donegal to change the way they play football because it's stifling them and it doesn't suit them anymore. They don't have the power. They don't have the pace to to go forward. You know the same way as they did on the McGuinness. A lot of what McGuinness did has taken the sting big time out of that team. They're a tired-looking team. Mm. How do you rejuvenate a tired team? Change it up. Get them to play in a completely different manner. And he's got two weeks to do that. If he doesn't do that, then they'll probably get beaten by Cork. But if he's able to have a look at it, take a step back and say, look it, what about it? Let's just change. Let's go for it. The other thing as well is, Ken, that... Gaelic football intercounty teams because now in the last 15-20 years they're closer to professional sport with rugby in Ireland that the setup and the experience in an intercounty team is so far removed from the setup and experience in a club team. Yeah. So when you have a young player coming up through his club uh, setup, like you know, he he's he know he he thinks that what he sees is the way it's done. But then he goes into an intercounty setup and it's a totally different experience yeah. for him in a totally different environment. It's all about preparation sacrifice from Processes. whatever you want to do it's all about process you're not allowed to develop your personality and the only time then that a player does feel strong enough to develop his personality and maybe impose his will or to <coughs> say something to management is when he's established when he is a really really good player mm. and for teams who are developing there's very few of those players within the team so for example in Roscommon at the moment they're a developing team and the stronger characters aren't there the, maybe the way they are in the Dublin team or in the Tyrone team uh, who are willing to maybe step out from what is they've been told to do like Sean Cavanagh did and do something a little different because he has that confidence and that's why a lot of people they're like robots these days yeah uh, you mentioned us coming yeah you were watching them over the weekend yeah, but it would probably be uh, a bad way to start it off by mentioning us coming like <laughs> Galway in fairness were exceptional yesterday Uh they obviously sat down during the week and they examined the two or three things they wanted to change that they thought were going to win them the game and, oh my God, they just changed the game so much. It, it seemed like such a simple change-up that Galway did. So it was, right, we played with fear last week. We, you know, went for the safety first option pretty much all the time. Roscommon did the same. As a result, the game was absolutely slated for seven days. Um and just that idea that, right, okay, we can, make, we can do one simple thing, which is push up on Roscommon's kickouts, deny Roscommon the short kickout, and everything flowed from there. I mean, it was, it, it, it's one of those times when, right, you can say, oftentimes you need to change five or six small things to get a big change in result. Mm-hmm. Goal to change one thing, which isn't even that big of a thing, really. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, deny Roscommon the, that easy option, and the whole thing flowed from there. Yeah, the big fear leading in even to the draw game from Roscommon's perspective was the, the strength of the goal in midfield. And it was a big surprise that they kind of let Roscommon off the hook the first day by not putting pressure on Compton and uh, 
Niall Daly around midfield by putting long balls out on top of them. So it was a very simple change, yeah. And Gordon made all the game go through midfield yesterday. They made Tom Flynn and Paul Conroy be the strongest characters on the pitch yesterday by putting the pressure on their opponents who weren't able to, to physically and from height perspective, they weren't able to manage them. And then on the opposite side, it was very bad on the Roscommon management side not to react to that. There was a big man on the bench, Tom Corcoran, who came in with about 15, 20 minutes to go, yeah. and he was the first person that was able to handle Conroy over the two games. They put him on too late, the game was gone at that stage, and it should have been a reaction that the Roscommon management were waiting for, that if they're putting pressure on us with long kickouts and pushing up on us, we're going to have to put a big man in straight away. But they didn't react. Yeah, it's weird, because I mean, even with 20 minutes of the drawn game to go, you know, there were a lot of people around me saying, okay, if we push up on Roscommon's kickout now, you know, we'll probably go on and, and win the game. So surely the, what should have been in the Roscommon management's head after that was, right, well, having had a week to study the drawn game, this is what Galway are going to do. They're going yeah. to push up on the kickouts. You would think that when you're setting your own team up, you're kind of scouting as well for what the other team might do to you. And but I mean, yeah, like the whole idea, yeah, the whole idea of a replay is that you, you, you change, but you also have to, you know, understand that the other team are going to change and have a plan for that as yeah, well. And they they totally took advantage of Roscommon playing the higher line than what Galway were playing. And when Conroy and Garrett Bradshaw and Sice got the ball after the Roscommon attack broke down, you could see them straight away heads up looking for that kick pass over the top. And there was uh, Galway halfbacks and wing forwards running into that space. And there was three or four occasions in each half where they just stood up and looked and popped the ball over the top. And next thing they were in on man on man on the, the Roscommon defence. Uh, I'm getting excited, Oshin. Yeah, I know. I, I I know. Don't. I know. I know. Don't reel it in. Yeah, I know. I'm trying though. I'm I'm, I'm trying to reel it in, but it, it is. It's tough because uh, for about let's say the 25 minutes in the middle of the first half. So we started a little slowly, and then the last five minutes weren't great. But the 25 minutes in between, that we Gola played brilliantly. Gola played yeah. absolutely brilliantly. And as Carol says, I mean, it was. Uh, pretty simple football forced the kick out to go to midfield. Our midfielders played really, really well, and the kick passing from those two guys and from our half back line and from uh, Gary Sice in the half forward line was exemplary. Uh, and I think the thing that separates Galway for being you could say they're a breakthrough team, I suppose this year. I think what separates them from the teams we've seen coming through, like the Fermanas and. I suppose you could maybe use Derry maybe this year as well, and, and teams who have come through the qualifier system in, in the past. I know they haven't come through the qualifier system, but a team who have who have built up gradually, Galway have six forwards who can hurt you. And I'd, I haven't seen a team that's come through in some time that have six forwards that can hurt you. So if you can ally that with a good structure defensively, a strong midfield, you've got the bones of, of what it takes to... Yeah, and it's yeah. weird, you know, because the, even the difference, you know, Mayo kind of left us in that game, and then in the last 15 minutes, yeah. right, Gola went on and won the game. But the surge in confidence after Danny Cummins' first goal yesterday, I mean, we started, the Gola really started to play at that stage like like a team that could belong in Crow Park yeah. in August, whatever, about September. You know, there, there was real confidence, there was actually real style to how Gola played yeah, yesterday. Well, Gola have a lot of confidence, sure, you know, from this last three games, with their defensive setup being very solid. And three, in three games in a row against Division 1 team, they haven't been broken down. So in this third game now, you have seen them develop the, the attacking uh, options a bit more and moving the ball a bit quicker. But while it was excellent yesterday and Roscommon weren't able to respond to it at all or to change their setup at all to counteract that, Galway are going to meet more difficult opponents from a defensive point of view going forward. And 
while they weren't able to push on early against Mayo because Mayo just are a better team, better defenders, uh, I would expect that, yeah, Galway are going to have a lot more tests uh, in the next couple of games and they're going to have a situation where Conroy and Flynn are going to be shut down. They won't have the momentum from midfield. One of the things that I was surprised by um, in the reaction to this is uh, talking about Roscommon. Roscommon now have to play in six days' time against either Clare or Derry. And this six days thing is presented as being this almost yeah. impossible obstacle for them to get over. What's... What's the problem with that? Six days is more than enough time to recover. I mean, they should be happy they've got a game again so quickly. I'm sure Muff is going to crack me in this stat, but I think it's two out of 22, yeah, something yeah. like that, have overcome. Technically small number. Yeah, and I, don't, I think it's more psychological, the reasons why. Totally teams, psychological. Yeah, I mean, yeah. three days should be enough to get over a game. Yeah, probably should, but I suppose by the time you've got over it psychologically, you know, you're probably talking Thursday, Friday. What preparation are you doing for the opposition by that stage? Anything, uh, any preparation you do any earlier probably isn't going to be taken in from a team point of view. I think Roscommon are quite lucky in that they're playing Clare. Is that... Is that I don't think it's any way worse or better than Derry. Like, I think that either draw would have been extremely yeah. tough for us. Common. I think yeah, it's not a it's not a physical thing. It's a pure mental reaction. Yeah. Now that is going to be the issue for them. Well, I think the one thing that they may struggle with again is how strong Clare's midfield are. That's it. You know, and I think if they can overcome that, uh, I think this is a this is a situation can where or Scotland can buck the trend this time around. But the thing is, the way the game ended up yesterday, the bottom kind of fell out of it. Like the team that ended was hasn't been on the pitch at all yeah, this year. There were yeah. so many new players in yesterday at the end of the game. It just looked like they were out of options and out of uh, belief, there was something in very belief in what they were doing. It yeah. just didn't look good for what might be coming next Saturday. Yeah, it, there was something very discouraging about just mm. the goal. They were happy to let them kick points and you know a couple of subs came on and said, right, I might as well kick a point while I'm here. But it, the game was so comprehensively over with 20 minutes to go that it's kind of hard for Common. I mean, it's interesting, actually, McStay said after the game that uh, he was already looking ahead to next week at half-time. You know, that's, that was kind of a weird thing to come out with, uh, given that they'd come back from whatever it was, seven points down against Sligo in the semi-final. You know, it, se- it seemed like a kind of a weird thing yeah, to say. The, kind of, the way it ends up yesterday brings home to Roos a lot of things that, you know, kind of have been said, but kind of not, not really looked at too much recently. Like, they haven't been playing well in championship. Like the four games they won in the league and the trot were excellent, but that was mainly because teams weren't teams had, they were playing hadn't their full team out. They weren't as well organised defensively maybe as the goal they were mm. in these two games. So Roscommon weren't playing against teams at that stage who were like ready for them and looking to take advantage of Roscommon's weak points. So you know it was kind of like Donegal were landing out or Kerry landing out, just playing who they had and see how it goes. Whereas now when they're playing against the likes of Galway who are obviously come through Division 2, have bet Mayo, they're very well set in their structure. Roscommon couldn't break them down and had no ideas about how to do it. And over the four five games now in Championship, Roscommon have not played well apart from the second half against Sligo. So there's a lot of those concerns going into this that we, you know people weren't really putting much stock in, but they come home to roost now. And that's another thing that allowed to the mental the difficulty to turn around mentally for the rest of the week. So I was walking around uh, Fairview yesterday evening. Um, there was a lot of true blue dubs there including myself, <laughs> and uh, and it was a beautiful day. It was, you know, Leinster final day. Sun, uh, the sun was shining. Everyone, well, people were feeling good at the start of the day. But I can give you the view from the hill. I mean, I couldn't get a ticket to the game. Obviously, the appetite for this is, is phenomenal. Half know, full crook. crook, 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 crook whatever, dogs. yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. Uh, but coming, uh, I could see the crowd. I met some of the crowd coming out of the game. I was walking through the crowd. And the view from the hill is that 
I heard someone say as you walked walk past, uh, it was just annoying the way they gave up so easily. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's the problem that that uh, that we have now in Dublin. It's people turn up and they don't even try. It turns out uh, it takes you know a few minutes into the game. People are prepared to accept, well, that's the way it's going to go. It's another championship for Dublin. I mean, when are, when are people going to come to Croke Park and try? Pretty, oh, pretty, pretty soon, I think. <laughs> pretty soon, yeah. August usually is when it yeah, starts. Yeah. Yeah. They're, uh, they're going to meet a team that is their match physically and the way they prepare pretty soon. Maybe not to the, the, the level that Dublin are at, but very close to the level. Like, so they are going to meet, uh, obviously, think, challenges that are going to test them. I think one of the problems is it looks as if they're going to play Donegal. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, if Donegal beat Cork. Yeah, Don- Donegal, Donegal or Cork. Well, like, so, if they were to beat Donegal, the problem with that game for Donegal is that that's a game that Dublin want. Yeah. That's a game that they're actually going to be motivated for. Yeah. So, you can imagine, that was an unmotivated uh, Dublin yesterday, Ken. So, you can you imagine a motivated Dublin, what they're going to do to teams as, as this... As this thing rolls on to yeah, the inevitable conclusion, and Dublin have navigated Leinster for how many years now, like Waltz and through, so those players know the way it, things are going to play out, and they've been they've been looking forward to August for pretty much the whole year. So while they'll get over Leinster and win those games, and they'll go out and put in a professional shift, they know like August is the time we got to get into action. And uh, yeah, it's weird. Like we we uh, have talked a lot about Cork in this studio, and we haven't held back on our criticisms of Cork. Uh, like I don't think Cork are in a, anything close to a situation whereby they can challenge Dublin. So, as for the benefit of the championship, we need to all support Dublin or Donegal in this game yeah. again, uh, between Donegal and Cork, right? Yeah, I think that would be that would give us something to get our teeth into, and I think you know that's a game. Dublin's that, kryptonite. Yeah. Donegal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's a. I still think that that's a game that Dublin want, and and if if Dublin meet this Donegal team right now, the way they are going. They absolutely hate them. They had eight forwards on the field at one point. Was that a bit disrespectful? Well, I mean, well, this is it. Like people have kept hoping the teams would do this. That when you have when a team sets up with uh, with two sweepers, you say, right, well, we'll just put on eight forwards and, and push up. Yeah, that's it. You know. Now, I'd I'd be interested to see if Dublin will do this against a Division One team. You know, or or any of the teams that they meet over the next three games between now and the third Sunday in September. I don't think that they would, would they? I think I think the good thing about Dublin is that they can adapt. You know, if they if they feel as if that's the right thing to do, they go for it. And you know, they haven't held back in that regard over the last couple of summers. And it's you have to say that it's completely worked for them. And you know, yesterday they could have played ten or twelve forwards. Yeah, and they, won the game. they have the athleticism to kind of stem the tide if they do get turned over. Like you know, they have the ability to get back pretty quick. You know, Sullivan isn't going forward, and they're going to have that protection for the full back line. So. While playing eight forwards might see them ship a few points against They're, a really good yeah. team. Yeah. It's not going to be open the floodgates, like I don't think. Yeah, it's, but I mean, it is. It, it is. It's it's interesting that they did that yesterday. You know, I mean, I, like I thought that that was kind of an interesting statement, and like they didn't do it with twenty minutes to go. Like they did it at half time. They they saw how the game was going, changed it in that in that way at half time, and just killed the game. Like absolutely murdered uh, Westmead in you know whatever it was the ten or fifteen minutes after. The third thing time. as well is like they knew they were going to have all the possession. So like if you have all the possession, like the threat from uh, only having four defenders on the field is not going to be that big a threat to your to how you're going to end up uh, in the the results. So yeah, once you have all the possession, you can you're not worried about turning yeah. the ball over. Like so yeah, like yeah. it doesn't really matter if you have eight, eight forwards. Yeah, 
Well, I, I'm just I'm just hoping we do get a game at some stage <laughs> at some stage this year. Uh, but thanks a million, Carl and Oshin, for uh, coming into us, talking to us about the weekend. Thanks, guys. And he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. a humorous competition. I saw that. Important man for my selection. Yeah, I thought that was interesting what the guys were saying about the, um, you know, increasing obedience of players. I I mean, as Carl was sort of suggesting, it obviously has to do with the uh, the fact that preparation is just so much more all-encompassing now. Mm. It's like this, you know, it's it's like if a coach isn't controlling every detail, then what's he doing? Yeah. Like, he's not, he's not doing his job properly unless he's kind of drilled the entire thing down to like a, a kind of a choreography, like it was a stage play. Yeah, and I think in, maybe in a weird kind of way, like the lack of games. You know, if if you know if a coach is preparing for games, then he's got enough in his plate. You know, but when there, when there's there are no games for months on end, and even when you're in the championship, there's still no games. You know, there might be a break for four weeks in between games in the championship. That's a lot of time to just be trying to make sure that you have all your bases covered. Mm. I mean, if you're working constantly on game plans, if a guy does a couple of media interviews or. You know, you know, there's for the players. There's loads of time for them to work out. Right, okay, here's the game plan, but here's a way that I can use my own personal ability to have a wrinkle in the game plan that incor- that that doesn't hurt the team, but actually incorporates some of the unique gifts that I have yeah. to bring to the table. I mean, a GA season is it's weird. Actually, I was talking to this uh, talking to. Um, talking to my brother at the game about this actually that the, you could see the player the goal of players playing with so much more freedom and enthusiasm and abandon in the first half and we were like this you know they're finding out what it's like to play in the championship in the last seven days or eight days now um, and they just hadn't done it before I mean it's, it's not like a Premier League season where at the end of a Premier League season you can say right well I'm a Premier League player now I mean, what is it to be a, uh, a guy who played senior inter-county championship for Galway? I mean, a guy could play four games for Galway over the course of six years. Mm. You know, and like that's, is that an inter-county career? Do you mean, do you know anything about, you know, at what level you are as a player at the end of those four games or six games over six years or whatever? You probably don't. You know I mean, it's, yeah. it's so hard to draw a line from one game to the next game to the next game and say, right, I'm in form or I'm not in form. Or, you know, the, the whole thing is just so, it's so sparse. There's so few games that it's hard to get into a rhythm. And when you do get into a rhythm, it's only then you really find out, you know, what you're capable of. Yeah, and when you come into a setup like that as well, like, um, it must take such strength of personality to, like a rare strength of personality, which most people don't have, to say, well, I think we should do things this way. You know, if you've if you've got an idea or if you've got some, if you want to take the initiative in some way, it's quite difficult to do that, I guess. If you come into an established setup, you're only a nobody. Um... Someone who's going to say, well, you know, I think this is what we should be doing. Um, I don't think many people would be able to do that. You just get that sort of sheep-like dynamic, which uh, seems to be characterizing a lot of these teams. Yeah, and what it is, is say if you take over uh, a football team, I'm not just mentioning football because you're here, but Mm. if you take over a a football team and you lose the first 10 games, or you lose your first five or six games, I mean, that's not 
you know, that's you know, obviously that's that's a, that's a terrible it's start. Disaster, yeah. But in the seventh game, you might have an idea of what the hell you're trying to do, and say, right, okay, this this needs to change, this needs to change. I mean, Gaelic games comes down to one game. You know, like the game plan might be right, but your team plays terribly, mm. and as a result, right, well, that game plan obviously was terrible. Uh, let's never try anything like that ever again. I mean, there's no, there's just no space for you to actually experiment and say, right, well, maybe we'll lose four games, but the fifth game we'll win in great style, and then we can go go on ahead. Four defeats is like two whole summers, and you've lost your job yeah. uh, after two years of your life. Hmm. So, I mean, that that's it. I mean, you, the it's it's weird. Like the, every single time we talk about what might be wrong with the G, it comes back to the idea that we've we're playing with these horrible outmoded structures, but. The, the, the more you talk about it, the more you realise it is actually all linked. And if you're not playing any games, it's pretty hard for you to come up with a, solu- a game-based solution to the problems that are in the game at the moment. So that's the way it is, I suppose. Well, we will. Uh, we're going to move on and talk about golf now in a second, but we do have another podcast out today, or we will shortly have another podcast out today. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But I'm not what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely, man. So we talked a little bit to John Bruin, who has been, um, well, following what's been going on with Sam Allardyce, who's trying to get the England job at the moment. Uh, it doesn't seem to have been given it yet, but it does look uh, on. And also uh, talked to him a little bit about Jose Mourinho, who is ensconced, enthroned at uh, Manchester United alongside his lovely assistant, Rui Faria. They've already played a couple of friendlies. And uh, we'll talk about how that's all uh, getting off the ground. Big Sam to England. Yeah. I mean, this is... This is manna from heaven for you, isn't it? Well, I, I think it's I think it's great. Might also be the right decision. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I've, I've always kind of liked Big Sam. I mean, I think his way of expressing himself is often amusing. Mm. His uh, sometimes, sometimes deliberately. Yeah, uh, his autobiography is, is very good, and uh, you know, I mean, there's there's maybe. Um, there's always that thing of, of sort of reacting to the faults of the previous manager when you appoint a new manager. But I do think that England have had a manager for a few years who didn't really, who couldn't really connect with his players, I think, in any meaningful way. I mean, the the most famous piece of interaction that Roy Hodgson had with his players was when he told a joke about a space monkey to illustrate a point Andrus Townsend. And everybody in the dressing room was sort of, Holding your head, saying, "I can't believe he's, I can't believe he's chosen that particular joke." It's not. It wasn't a problem. I mean, it, you know, it was reported then as, "Oh, Roy, race joke storm," and it wasn't really. It wasn't a racist mm. outrage by Roy Hodgson. It was just a demonstration of his tone deaf inability to. He it never occurred to players that he way. It yeah. never occurred to him that that might not be the ideal joke to use in this. It just didn't, you know. And not even from a racial context, just. Just, just bizarre, just a bizarre cool. story, you, bizarre way to try and make. Why a point. are you telling a joke about like test animals in the 1960s space program? Yeah, I mean that's that's just so long ago now. The space age is just. I mean, no one is is talking about that. It's impossibly <laughs> old fashioned to talk about rockets going to the yeah. moon. Um, so yeah, we'll talk a little bit about uh, about all that stuff. But for now, it's uh, it's golf because it was a great last day in the Open. Henrik Stenson beat Phil Mickelson. In a dramatic shootout, a phenomenal final round of 63. We're joined now by Sam Weinman of Golf Digest. Sam, was that the greatest round of golf ever played? 
Oh, gosh, it's certainly on the short list. Uh, you know, I, people talk about Miller's 63 as sort of the precedent. But I think, first of all, this was, um, you know, in the final group, which was much more impressive. I also think it was a much more difficult golf course, believe it or not, than what Johnny Miller faced at Oakmont in 73 because it was so soft that day. So it's up there. I mean, um, you know, I, I, it's hard to think of one better. But uh, given given everything that was on the line for a guy who hadn't won a major and who was being pushed, obviously, by one of the greats of all time, I'd have a hard time disagreeing with it. Uh, oftentimes, the guy who's leading overnight at a major uh, feels the need to play conservative golf or, you know, to try and feel his way around and make sure that he doesn't make a mistake that hands a victory to the to his opponent. Very early on, this became a shootout. And Henrik actually said afterwards that that made it easier for him mentally. I, I agree. I mean, think about it, guys. Usually when you're in a major, you're, you're thinking, okay, I need to shoot a score. I need to, I need to play the golf course and stick to a game plan. Well, here the game plan was right in front of him based on what Phil was doing. So I think, you know, the, 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 the more that Phil had pressed him, the more he felt the need to respond. And the, the genius of the whole thing was he was able to respond quite well. Um, so I think it was easier in the sense that he didn't have to, to guess what he needed to do. It was right in front of him. Yeah, the, the distillation of the entire tournament. I mean, the J.B. Holmes finished 13, 14 shots adrift of Stenson, 11 shots adrift of Mickelson, was really what made this kind of a classic sporting event. I mean, uh, it actually showed how dramatic golf can be when it just comes, into, comes down to a one-on-one duel like that. It is. I mean, again it's a cliche. I mentioned this yesterday. It's a cliche that golfers use a lot when they say, you know, I'm just trying to, put, to play the golf course and, and take what's given to me. But now it becomes a personality conflict. I mean, these guys get along fine, but it becomes a, a clash of two guys. And it, it shows, you know, the, the, the need to come up with something that you might not think you had based on what he was doing. So um, I thought it was fantastic. I, you know, I also made the point, I don't know if you guys agree with me, but Matt, Match play in golf, you know, it's always been tossed around. Like, why don't they make a major, one of the majors, a, a match play event? And I think this was the best example of why it could be that. I think there are a lot of reasons why it wouldn't work. But in terms of head-to-head battle, um, this was as good an advertisement as you could have. Yeah, um, and I suppose when you have guys hitting as many birdies, I mean, Stenson hit 10 birdies. Uh, when you have guys hitting that many birdies on a final day of a major I mean, obviously, match play seems like a great idea then. Maybe not so much when it's a bit of a grueler or a bit of a one-sided uh, final round, as it may be sometimes in match play. But uh, like the, the thing that struck me as well was the stare down at the, on the 18th green on Saturday, which I think kind of really whetted people's appetite even before Sunday began. The Stenson uh, maybe trying to put a little bit of a mental squeeze on, on Mickelson, give him something to think about even over the course of Saturday night. Well, that's a good point. I think, first of all, you're absolutely right. I, I think the fact that they played together Saturday was a big part of the drama yesterday. Obviously, it was just, just familiarity with each other. They had separated themselves so far from everyone else that it really became a two-man golf course or two-man golf tournament. So I think that's part of it as well. But I also think that for Henriks, uh, you know, in his mind, here's a guy who has five majors. He has none. There's a lot of pressure on him. So for him to sort of offer that, you know, that kind of look – show that listen i know what's on the line here but i'm not afraid of it and uh i thought it was it was a great like you said a great appetizer for for what we saw on sunday 
Yeah, and I mean, you, you kind of look back now and think, right, well, Stenson won it by three and had, had those ten birdies. I mean, he was never going to lose. But on the 16th green, uh, Stenson, uh, Mickelson had a putt for maybe whatever it was, 15, 20 feet for eagle. Right. And Stenson had a six-foot putt for birdie. Mickelson's putt goes in for... If, if, if Mickelson's putt for eagle had gone in, Stenson's putt for birdie then becomes a much more difficult proposition. As it was, Mickelson's eagle putt rolls by by right. half an inch. And Stenson rolls in the birdie putt. I mean, if you look at turning points for both players, maybe that was the moment when the momentum swung Stenson's way. Well, I agree. I think you're right that the three-shot deficit doesn't do justice to how close it was. And maybe the one thing that we didn't get, which would have been awesome, was that it came down the last putt on 18. But um, you're right. I mean, that putt goes in. Obviously, the six-footer that, that Stenson faces it becomes a lot more intense. And, and uh, again, the guy... Putted, he's not he's not known as a great putter. I mean, he's known as a fine putter. And obviously, yesterday he proves he's capable of phenomenal putting. But but you know, it's a different ball game when you have to make a six footer like that. And uh, it would have been really interesting to see what would have happened. But you're right, it, it was it, it, that was kind of the that was the one that sealed it for for me at least. Um, there was a kind of an idea that I suppose because Stenson is Swedish uh, that he's um, you know a cool headed an ice man. Uh, as yeah. as against uh, Phil Mickelson, but actually he's um, he does like a bit of a gamble, Henrik Stenson. He does. This is a man who lost nine million dollars in a Ponzi scheme. He likes. Uh, he seems to like it when everything's on the line. I think so. I think uh, the Iceman thing is in part because he just looks a lot like Val Kilmer from uh, from Top Gun. But <laughs> no, no, you're right. The other thing about him is they, they, he's got this reputation as Iceman, but he also is known as having this ridiculously bad temper he's like destroyed golf clubs and lockers and things like that so that's kind of part of him as well it, 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 it you know he he's a great personality very funny you know kind of a droll sense of humor uh colorful guy um the ponzi scheme you're right i don't know you know that's a shame because i don't know if he knew that losing that money was at all in the cards uh, it was so um i don't know if that was a gamble as much as it was just rotten luck but um yeah he's 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 definitely not this uh um, you know, dry, cool, doesn't get bothered type of guy because we've seen a lot of instances where where he can get fired up as good as anyone. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's not exactly been an easy route to the top for him either. I mean, he was number 500 in the world in 2003. Uh, you know, there are these huge sort of peaks and troughs in his career. Hadn't won for 18 months before uh, winning three weeks ago in Cologne. Uh, it's it's an amazing story for him. I mean, at the age of forty, I mean, he automatically goes down as one of the older. Like Phil was being talked about mm-hmm. as you know one of the oldest major winners. I mean, Stenson himself is no spring chicken. So I mean, it's an amazing story for him as well. Totally, and I mean, he he had two ridiculously bad slumps in his career. One was this you know two thousand two two thousand three where he walked off the golf course at the K Club and you know couldn't get a driver in the fairway and fell to you know he didn't want to play golf anymore basically because he just couldn't figure out the driver. Um, and then he had another one after one of the players in, in 2009 where, you know, he dropped down to, he didn't qualify for the PGA championship, ended up playing in his club championship at his course in Sweden. I mean, so this guy has seen a number of dips and I think, I wonder how much that sort of plays into his ability to handle yesterday, which was, you know, yes, there's pressure on the line to win a major, but, but, but there's, you know, I think he understood that given where he was, uh, it was still a remarkable spot to be in. So um, I, I, you know, I, it's a, it is a remarkable story. And, and I would say now, I mean, I got to look at the all numbers, but he's won a players and a major and he won a, uh, a tour championship. So I think, or, or a FedEx cup. So 
you got to think he's on the he's a lock for the Hall of Fame now for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Um, from Phil's point of view, uh, he played a bogey-free round of 65 in the last group of a major and got beaten. Does that make it easier for him to take or harder for him to take? I don't, I don't know. Well, he said yesterday it doesn't make it any easier. But, I mean, at the same time, it's not like he's looking at it and saying, God, I, I just I spit the bit here. I didn't, I didn't answer the call because obviously he did. So i got to think there's some solace in that. You know, it, it, it's, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, uh, you, know, you, you know, the heartbreaks he's had, like Wingfoot, when he you know, makes double bogey and last hole with the chance to win a major. First of all, the fact that, that he already won a Claret Jug, I think, makes this much easier. Um, and the fact that he played as well as he could play, there's still got more golf in front of him. I think, you know, he might say this hurts because he played so well, bogey for 65 and lost, but I don't think he's waking up this morning with a lot of regrets. The Murph and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt from Ireland's second captain show. All up in the into the web. Owen McDevitt worldwide. Second captain. Those guys are like, those guys are like family to me, man. Owen McDevitt. This is Locke. The coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> All right. He said I was a fucking soccer. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. If you say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing achievement, really, for Henrik Stenson. Uh, this is a guy who's been up and down the rankings uh, like a jack-in-the-box. 2003, he was down to 500, back to the top 15 by 2006, uh, back down to 224 in March 2012. Uh, it was number two in November 2014. He's now number five after winning the Open. Um, there was a crazy quote from myself from, um, he's talking about 2001. He said, I had a period, I was in a period where I had no idea where the ball was going off the tee. My missus could, could be shocking about 70 yards offline in some cases, usually to the right. 70 yards is an insane amount to be offline for a professional yeah. golfer. He said, um, he talks about different types of fear that there are in um, golf. Uh, you know, the fear of uh, fears can go off. Most amateurs are familiar with the fear of being embarrassed by missing short putt, the fear that comes in hanging onto a one-up lead with two holes to play. But the fear I felt at tournaments was something very different. I was terrified of taking someone's head off with a drive. Standing the tee, I'd see the tunnel of people just in front of the tee box, craning their necks for it to watch, oblivious to the very real danger they were in. The image of hitting someone would enter my mind and not go away. <laughs> like, that is, that's pretty amazing. That you could come back to win a... Like, that's 15 years ago. So he's had 15 years of... Well, no, he hasn't had 15 years of thinking that. But when he was driving the ball that badly, from there to get to a stage where you're winning uh, a major tournament is pretty pretty outstanding. I mean, you know, for amateur golfers do actually know that feeling. It's called the first tee at a nice golf course. Right. Where all you want to do is just get a decent distance away from the clubhouse before hacking up their beautiful course. Oh, right, okay. So, I mean, I have, 
I, I, I must admit... Do you feel as though you're being watched as judgment? Oh, well, judging the, eyes, twitching curtains at the clubhouse? Well, there 100% is. I mean, that's definitely what they're doing. Right. I mean, I played a golf course, a very nice golf course, in February of this year. And there was a, there was a gentleman standing at the first tee. Right. And he was handing you your scorecards and, you know, a couple of tees. And he was asking polite questions along the lines of, oh, where are you boys from? And... Yeah, go out and I hope you enjoy it now. And the first hole here, just you just go up there and then over that hill or whatever. But what he was, his job was actually all about was seeing if you can hit the ball out of your way, and if you're not, then like getting you off the course. Really? Oh, really? <laughs> well, I mean, the idea is you can't play intolerably slowly. Oh, because you're you know, holding the people behind. Yeah. Yeah, it's not yeah. that you'll actually chop up the physically chop up the no. course with your club. No, it's a links course. Hopefully, the sea and you know the sand and all the rest will eventually see the course recover. <laughs> but I mean, so that's pretty intimidating, you know. So you're st- you're standing there, you know. Maybe you haven't you know played golf in like six months. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. I think I know how to do this. And there's a you know a crusty old Northern Irish gentleman. Staring at you. Ah, golf. Such a, still such a welcoming game. Oh, it is. It really, really is, Ken. Well, that's all from myself and Kieran today. Um, Owen will be back on Thursday. Uh, we'll, we'll have another uh, podcast for you to discuss this incredible sun drenched summer of sport. Uh, try and stay out of the pollen tomorrow if, uh, <laughs> if that's a problem for you. And I uh, hope you uh, enjoy the next couple of days. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 